Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. 350 union victories and still no contract. The plight of workers at Starbucks. Now Ford and Stellantis approve the new UAW contract. And today on the show, the latest from the American Legion and the challenges, injuries, and divisions of capitalism. Welcome to the Monday, November 20th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with Jeff Stouffer, who is the American Legion's Media and Communications Division Director, legion.org, for complete updates. And today, we are going to preview the upcoming edition of the American Legion magazine. This would be the December edition, and on the cover story is... Artificial intelligence, what does it mean for us? Yes, you've been hearing a whole lot about this subject. And uh, the article points out that since the advent of modern computing, humans have been enamored with the idea of computers with brains. Computers that cannot only calculate, but reason on their own. That's the uh, scary part. And the authors tie this in to uh, the United States government. Are we on top of this issue when it comes to national security? They write, yet the pace of artificial intelligence innovation is not flat. It is accelerating. If the United States does not act, it will likely lose its leadership position in AI to China in the next decade and become more vulnerable to a spectrum of artificial intelligence-enabled threats from a host of state and non-state actors. And they went on to say that the government lags behind the commercial state-of-the-art in most AI categories, including basic business automation. This will be an interesting conversation uh, with Jeff Stouffer. The uh, second story we're going to delve into is a Q&A that the Legion did with the uh, VA secretary. That would be Dennis McDonough. And they talked about the uh, VA initiatives to help reduce the number of veterans lost to suicide. We've talked about this on the show relentlessly. And this is an article done by Henry Howard, who we featured back in September during uh, Suicide Prevention Month. We're also going to talk about the PACT Act, which was signed into law last year, and where we are on implementing the PACT Act. And we're talking about uh, a whole lot of money and 4.4 million vets that have so far received toxic exposure screenings from their primary care physicians at the VA. So seems to be going in the right direction. And uh, Jeff is also going to talk to us about how he spent Veterans Day. Second guest on the show is Michael Zweig. Michael is Professor Emeritus of Economics and the founding director of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, S-U-N-Y. He has a very long history of social activism 
He has published a number of journals and books. He's been uh, on Bill Moyer's PBS programs, articles on The Nation. And uh, he's also very active in his union. United University Professions, Local 2190, which is affiliated with the American Federation of Teachers. And his latest book is titled Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. He's going to talk about how capitalism has pretty much divided the middle class. He's also going to define middle class, working class, and the capitalist class. We're also going to talk about progressive politics. What are progressive politics today? And listen to this. Michael says, he's of the opinion anyway, that a steel worker in this country is far more exploited than a peasant laborer in Guatemala. But that person is better off. He's going to explain all this. This is pretty fascinating. So Michael Zweig will be our second guest right here on the show. And now, a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. $17 billion in assets under advisement, serving the needs of Taft-Hartley funds, corporations, public funds, endowments, foundations, as well as religious organizations. Last Thursday, thousands of Starbucks employees all around the country went on strike to oppose the company's refusal to bargain in good faith with Starbucks Workers United. The strike was time to align with the company's Red Cup Day, on which customers who place a drink order at a participating store receive it in a free holiday-themed reusable cup. Workers are also calling for Starbucks to turn off mobile orders on promotion days because they add chaos to their workload, which is already kind of crazy. Well, On Red Cup Day last year, workers at 113 cafes went on strike protesting the company's refusal to negotiate a contract with the union. One year later, workers at hundreds of stores again struck about the company's failure to bargain in what the union claims to be its largest strike to date. Now, keep in mind, Starbucks Workers United won its first union victory at a Starbucks cafe in Buffalo, New York, January of 2022. So we're coming up to the two-year anniversary. Here we are, almost two years later, 350 union victories. Not a single store has come close to securing a contract. Meanwhile, the National Labor Relations Board has lodged over 100 complaints against the company. Why? For closing stores, firing pro-union workers, and failing to negotiate in good faith with the union. Meanwhile, the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union and United Food and Commercial Workers Union have filed unfair labor practice charges against REI for refusing to bargain in good faith at eight stores across the country. According to the charges, REI would not meet with the union at a reasonable frequency and stall negotiations to avoid reaching an agreement on working conditions with the union. Charges also include claims that REI unilaterally change working conditions, including switching to a new scheduling system, updating attendance and dress code policies, disciplining workers for unscheduled breaks, and banning workers from discussing non-work matters on Microsoft Teams, all without 
contacting the union. The company also fired workers without giving the union a chance to bargain over their terminations. Right now, 80 unfair labor practices have been filed against REI since union organizing campaigns first started, and that would have been last spring. Just another example of how difficult it is to get that first contract and how bad labor law is in this country. The Fifth Circuit ruled last week that Tesla's ban on employees wearing union shirts does not violate federal labor law. Writing for a three-judge panel, the judge Jerry Smith concluded that Tesla's uniform policy advances a legitimate employer interest and does not discriminate against union communication or impact workers' time outside work. By the way, this ruling is binding in the Fifth Circuit. Where is that? Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. That should not come as a surprise. Now, according to the appeals court, the labor board applied an irrational rule that treats any restriction on union apparel as an unlawful infringement of workers' rights under a long-standing Supreme Court decision, Republic Aviation, which actually fails to consider employer interests. This decision could create problems for federal enforcement of previous labor board decisions outlying company restrictions on employees' right to wear union buttons and other symbols at work. We've talked about this several times on the show. And finally, some good news from the United Auto Workers, UAW, overwhelmingly ratified new contracts with Ford and Stellantis. That, along with a similar deal with GM, will raise pay across the industry. Workers at Stellantis, maker of Jeep, Dodge, and Ram, voted almost 69% in favor of the deal. The deal at Stellantis passed by a roughly 10,000-vote margin. Workers at Ford, they voted over 69% in favor of the pack, which passed with a nearly 15,000-vote margin in balloting that ended on Saturday. And GM workers, we reported it on this last week, they narrowly approved a similar contract. So the agreements will run through April of 2028. All right. Quick break when we come back. Jeff Stofer on behalf of the American Legion. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's liuna.org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today 
Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at IFPTE.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be a WF Union podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. And we'll be hearing from Melissa Cropper, president of the OFT, tomorrow. Today, it's Jeffrey Stouffer's turn. Jeff, longtime contributor to America's Workforce, where he serves as the Communications Division Director for the American Legion. Complete updates, I always say, go to legion.org. A lot of good information, a lot of good videos there. And we're going to talk about the uh, December issue on the front page, Artificial Intelligence. What does it mean for us? We are traveling into the unknown. Well, we know some of it, and some of it is pretty scary. And today we're going to focus on artificial intelligence and national security, or right now, should we say national insecurity? Jeff Stouffer, I'm going to let you pick it up from there. This is a really good article, another hard-hitting article on behalf of your staff over there at the American Legion. So I'll let you pick it up from there, brother. Go ahead. Thanks, Flash. Yeah, it's uh, the the issue of AI. We hear about it in all over the media in little bits and pieces and the, and, and elements of what it, what it could mean and what it might mean and what it is. And I think the operative art, uh, quote in the article that we have in the in the December issue of the American Legion magazine comes from the former CEO of Google who said really only 10% of what it will be is what we know. And so there's another 90% of artificial intelligence ahead that we don't even know what it's going to, how it's ultimately going to evolve. And I think what we, what we wanted to do with this article was literally frame the whole you know, spectrum of issues that relate to AI, prominently national security, um, with a with a keen eye on uh, what it means to labor, what it means to work, what it means to the future of of just about everything we do. But primarily, the the, the focus of this piece was on keeping our nation safe in so many different ways that that um, you know adversarial you know, uh, nations to the United States can, can infiltrate. And, you know, the author gets into it on a site uh, in one sidebar, the concept of a, of a, our, you know, is, it, is such a thing as a cyber Pearl Harbor possible? 
where you know uh, where the where you know an, a rogue nation or an enemy nation could really disrupt everything we we do and everything we are. Well, he makes the case in a chronology where he goes into says, well, you know, it really began in twenty. 12 when they were talking about the you know the analysts were looking at the biggest threat was crippling our electric electrical grid and our water supply and our banking systems we talked about that in earlier shows and if it was 2014 it's north korea hacking into our into our corporate computers and if it was 2016 they would say it was uh russian hack russians hacking into our computers to disrupt our elections and in 2021 you know, it might be the the fact of of a of a, of a cyber criminal or cyber criminal system abetted by an enemy nation that would use some sort of a ransomware or something like that to shut down, um, you know, some sort of a critical pipeline that would you know pump up gas gas prices and and move the economy in a negative way because that's the way these uh, you know the, the, these things ultimately create threat. Um, I remember reading an article a long time ago when Henry Kissinger, who I've interviewed before, and he, and he talked about, he, he really saw AI, artificial intelligence, as the big existential threat to human civilization going forward. And this was probably five, six years ago when he wrote this piece. And, you know, like, again, the, these, these, these uh you know, top, you know, uh, thinkers and analysts and, 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 and people who are in leadership are now looking at this and saying, we only know about 10% of what this is going to be. This is a, this is a concern. What really scares me in the article, which uh, points out that other countries seem to be a little bit more ahead of us on the issue of artificial intelligence. Can you, uh, can you touch on that? Well, yeah, they, it's, it, you know, we know that a lot of the Asian um, countries like China and Russia and North Korea, Korea and the, have focused uh, a lot of attention, money, resources, energy, and education. We talk about that a lot, you know, how well educated are, how, how, how well educated are we becoming? And we're, you know, the, the concern is that we're fast losing the technology race and it's almost like a space race. If you think about it, mm -hmm. the, but the, but the technology race, as we, as we lose ground on that, it com comes about because our, our main focus during in the last, you know, 20 years, 25 years has been on counterterrorism, you know, getting terrorism sort of controlled or, or at least, you know, hopefully, you know, eradicated in our, in our world, which is not going great but at the end of the day at the same time these other nations have been investing heavily into honestly artificial intelligence and um you know the the thing about it is is this threat is not something that's kind of like brewing on some distant horizon it is accelerating and um there's there there's a you know uh, there was a report that was that was produced um um, in 2021, that kind of began, and, and the the former CEO of Google was was part of that part of that uh, that group that that did this report, and you know, literally, they call it the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, which did a 600 plus page report. This was in late 2021. That um, you know 
basically focused on our issues with talent, technology, intellectual property, and basically waking, quote unquote, waking America from its slumber. And the, the fact of the matter is, is these, as we've been focusing on other matters in our, in our national security environment, um, the, the cyber threats and the, of what artificial intelligence is going to be, we still have, I think, global leadership. And he brings us up. We still have global leadership. But if we lose that position through, through um, you know, I guess, um, complacency maybe um, if we are not, not, not devoting enough energy, attention and seriousness to it, you know, this could be a real threat to, um, you know, world stability and to the United States. We need to point out there are two authors on this story in the uh, December edition of the American Legion magazine, and one of them, Andrew Hone, is a top strategist for the Department of Defense. I mean, we're talking about pretty sharp guy here, and uh, he also is currently with the RAND Corporation, another very distinguished organization. And the article points out, I'm going to read right from it, the U.S. government still operates at human speed, not machine speed. Adopting AI requires profound adjustments in our national security business practices, organizational cultures, and mindsets from the tactical to the strategic, from the battlefield to the Pentagon. And he points out that the government lags behind the commercial state-of-the-art in most AI categories, including basic business automation. It suffers technical deficits ranging from digital workforce shortages to inadequate acquisition plans, insufficient network architecture, and weak data practices. And he also says bureaucracy, which we know about, yeah. is thwarting better partnerships with AI leaders in the private sector that could help. This is scary stuff. This is really <laughs> scary stuff. I'm just wondering, um, is there any indication, I mean, coming from an individual like this who had ties to the Defense Department, uh, do we have any idea that they're talking about this right now? This this sounds like priority number one, in in my opinion, don't you think? Well, that's the concern that we're trying to raise that it should rise as as a as a high as a higher priority. You know, I was watching football over the weekend, and I don't know, I saw a few ads from industry um, from companies talking about AI. You know, and here's these robot squirrels running around in this one ad, and I think, huh. You know, what is this, you know, and, and it's basically the, the point that I got out of the ads was that, um, you know, we, we basically, this is happening. We need to learn how to leverage it and, and leverage it to our advantage rather than fear it or, can, or be worried about it. And it reminds me a lot of those ads back in the day. You may remember back when they were talking, when that little girl got up and was talking about the future of the information superhighway when the internet was just emerging. And I, and I, and, and how, how kind of like ominous those ads were. These ads this weekend were a little ominous about AI and the future. And of course, you know, we definitely in the veteran space and in the public space are very concerned about what it's going to mean for labor, for jobs, for right. careers, and not just not just in uh, you know in industry and in defense and in the military. You know, there's this one prediction that the U.S. workforce within 15 years AI could replace up to 50 percent of U.S. jobs. And you know, what does that mean? Are we going to 
is everybody going to have to become a cyber a programmer? And I don't know that everybody is necessarily built for that. And what does this, what does this, what is this going to ultimately mean? But all that really the whole point of the, of the piece was sort of to frame the entire conversation into a context for a broader audience, which our audience is very broad. And, mm-hmm. and this, this, you know, cause, and you know, we're seeing, like I say, these, these kind of like um, shots over the bow about, AI should we is it can is it a worry you know we we know what what the what was happening with the screenwriters um, last year with the with their strike and everything like that and and the and the use of AI to write scripts and you know in our industry in the media and in what we do in, in information development AI is a thing that we are learning about and how do we use it and you can't say well I'm not going to use it because it's inorganic if you're not using it to some degree or at least learning about it and embracing it to a certain level you're going to be behind the curve and so it's a, it's a it's a it's really a question about what i think about you know what is the what what half what half this rot you know it's like that alexander graham bell when the telephone was was invented you know and and the, and the authors in the story i think appropriately compare it to an industrial revolution. Yeah, yeah. I fear the day when I'm going to be doing this show talking to a computer instead of Jeff Stouffer. I mean, that could be the case down the road. Well, that works <laughs> both ways. <laughs> exactly, it does. All right, I got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Jeff. Later in the show, we're going to talk to a social activist and author, Michael Zweig. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Attention members of the Heat and Frost Insulators Union who are interested in traveling. Central Ohio has more construction projects on the books than anywhere in the U.S. Mega projects, large and medium-sized jobs are creating more work than our local 50 brothers and sisters can handle. Projects like Intel, the Honda LG battery plant, and multiple data centers for Facebook, Google, and Amazon offer union wages, overtime, exciting incentives. Local 50 is seeking union travelers to meet the needs of its signatory contractors who can put you to work immediately. If you're a member in good standing and interested in the work opportunities in Central Ohio, visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF travel for more information. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. 
We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. When you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings. So keep them coming. Right now, let's go back to our live line. Rejoin Jeff Stouffer on behalf of the American Legion, legion.org, for complete updates. We're talking about the December edition. And uh, this is a good piece here by Henry Howard, who we have featured on the show when uh, we were doing our special on suicide prevention back in uh, September. We talked about the Be the One campaign. And apparently Henry talked to uh, the VA secretary, Dennis McDonough, about that and other issues. Uh, I'm going to let you pick it up from there. Jeff, go ahead. Well, that's right, Flash. We uh, had an exclusive interview with the VA secretary, Dennis McDonough, and you know, kind of hit on a couple of our key uh, uh, priorities in the American Legion, and we're you know very happy the fact that VA also agrees that suicide prevention is its number one clinical priority. You know, we as as much as we've worked to try to raise awareness and try to build you know um, up resources out and and give veterans an opportunity to to reach out and to get help. To we we. we as our Be the One campaign is all about destigmatization of the pursuit of mental health, um, you know, help and treatment. Um, the suicide rate among veterans continues to sit at about over 50% greater than that of the general population due to a number of different factors. And um, one of the things that we try to get, we try, we, 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 that the VA secretary gave us on this was the fact that we're kind of working in, in partnership and lockstep with VA on the efforts to strengthen our sort of mental health infrastructure. You know, he talked about in the interview with Henry, he talked about the, the Veterans Compact, Comprehensive Prevention Access to Care and Treatment Act, that, you know, basically ensures that if you're enrolled in VA or not, and you, 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 you can go to VA and you can get help for, for mental health services, it's called the Compact. And, you know, last year there was uh, 32,469 veterans took advantage of that. And we also, of course, as, especially now that we're you know, heading toward the holiday season and into the holiday season, we want veterans to fully understand that they're not alone and strongly encourage them to use the 988 crisis line press one to get in touch with a mental health professional if that's needed. And there are other resources that, that we strongly encourage. We are, of course, are encouraging through Be The One. All of our American Legion posts, more than 12,000 nationwide, to be a turnstile, be an opportunity to be a safe place for a veteran who is in crisis to make the call and say, hey, I, I, I could use some help, and that they re- refer them properly to the right resources in their local communities. A lot of local communities have different um, 
you know, uh, resources available for veterans who may be, you know, at risk in, in this, at, the, at this time. And we really want to ensure that our posts and our, our American Legion members are working to get them to the right places to get the care that they need. Um, and a couple of other topics that, you know, Henry hit on and keep, you know, we really, really have been watching closely the way in which the PACT Act is being handled. We mm-hmm. talked about that. That was the, you know, the, the Toxic Exposure Act that was passed in a, a year ago in August. And, you know, VA has, it has been um, as expected, we knew this going in, that the, the, the landslide of claims filed, claims processed has been profound. You know, I think that they have, there have been um, more than a million PACT Act claims that have been filed. And there are, I think, I think that they've processed overall in this year, this last year, they processed something like 1.98 million claims that VA did in the last year, which was 15, 16% higher than the previous year. And that's going to keep going up as more and more veterans realize that they are eligible for benefits for toxic exposure that they were um, expo- to toxic contaminants that they were exposed to during their military service. And that's what the, that's what this is all about. And it's about fairness to veterans who are sick or who have problems who are that are related to having come into contact with, with toxic exposure to burn pits and Agent Orange in places that were previously not acknowledged, you know, uh, radiation, cancers. Uh, there's a variety of different things that the PACT Act um, address. I think there were 26 different conditions that all of a all of a sudden through that act became um, uh, uh, eligible for VA disability benefits. A lot of veterans have waited a long time for these, and we would like those veterans to, you know, find a vet, American Legion veteran service officer or another or that of another veteran service organization, and really. Um, find out what they're eligible for if their if their if their military service is makes them eligible for these for disability benefits because they earned them and they deserve them and this is only fair that that this come about now um another thing that he talked about was the first national buddy check week which happened in october uh this year and va basically picked up the american legion model and began a program to contact, engage, direct outreach to veterans who may be isolated and communicate with them and just say, hey, we're here. What can we do for you? What can we do for you? That's so important. You know, we talk about that heading into the holidays. We're really going to be pushing our posts and our members to continue that process. VA did it October 16 through 22. We do it pretty much all around the uh, year round. And more and more of our posts are really, American Ninja posts are really hitting this. This buddy check program, you know, I think we had, I, I want to say 4,500 posts who actually conducted buddy check operations last year. And I think it's growing um, by a lot. And, you know, we're, we're really reaching a lot of veterans and letting them know that, hey, whether you need somebody to help get your groceries or maybe you are being the victim of senior fraud, maybe you are, maybe you just need somebody to talk to, or maybe you're at risk for suicide. And that's what we're trying to get to. Jeff, if you don't mind, I want to go back to the, uh, the part about the PACT Act. There's a website. Those of you listening, if you're a vet, 
you might have uh, suffered some problems with a burn pit or you know of somebody, here's the website to go to. It's va.gov forward slash pact. va.gov forward slash pact. Let's move on. One more here, and that's the uh, 30th anniversary of the Vietnam Women's Memorial. I didn't even realize there was such a memorial, and apparently uh, that's how you spent your Veterans Day. Talk to me about that. It is how I spent my, my Veterans Day. What a what a great uh, milestone for uh, Vietnam Women's Memorial I, I, was a decade-long ordeal, and it was led by Diane Carlson Evans, who I've talked about on the show before. She was a Vietnam War combat nurse, and she was a member of the American Legion's 100th Anniversary Honorary Committee. Uh, um, uh, just a, an amazing, amazing woman who has who pushed this hard after she went to the um, the Vietnam um, Memorial Wall dedication ceremony in 1982, and she thought that of all you know, there's just one element of this that's missing, and that's simply a a lack of of acknowledgement of the women who served during the Vietnam War. She came from out of the group of the you know. Uh, of the of those who served, I think about uh, ten thousand plus who served in combat, primarily as nurses and other in other MOSs too, and then there was altogether something like two hundred and sixty five thousand women who served in the military during the Vietnam War. Well, as to make a long story short, they began a they began a battle to get some sort of recognition on the National Mall for the women who served during the Vietnam War, specifically for the women. And it was highly controversial. And there were a lot of critics and a lot of opponents. And through great perseverance and a lot of support from not only the nurses who served in Vietnam and other women who served during that period, but from a lot of men, many men whose lives were saved by those nurses who, 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 uh, who were there this weekend, this last or this last weekend, this Veterans Day weekend, in Washington D.C. to help commemorate the 30th anniversary of the installation of that memorial, that was um, quite quite a milestone because it it was you know 35 years ago. Diane and the women were fighting tooth and nail with Congress, with with commissions, with the media about whether or not women deserved a place on the National Mall. Whether this was even this was they were they were, they were ridiculed. It was absolutely. Uh, if you think about it in the context of today's times, it was just unbelievable. Because you know, and and what 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 the, the point of all this is that well, this is not just a memorial to the women who served in Vietnam or even the women nurses who helped save lives during Vietnam. But at the at the a candlelight vigil on November 10th, and then a big ceremony on November 11th, where Diane Carlson Evans was the keynote speaker at the observance at the wall. Um, one, you know, one of the we had active duty uh, military women who were talking about how those who served during the women who served in the Vietnam War basically uh, paved the way for the future of women serving in the military. Altogether, you know they, you know uh, this uh, U.S. We had an Army Captain Danielle Craig who said during this November 10th candlelight vigil that Vietnam women showed that women women could serve in other capacities 
such as combat roles, and they help to break down barriers and stereotypes about women. The women of the Vietnam War are role models for us all. They showed us that we can make a difference in the world no matter our gender or background. Well, I don't think it's any coincidence that after that, um, that memorial was constructed and has inspired new generations of women and girls, young girls, to see it when they, when they, when they go, to the, go to the mall, they have joined the military in a growing number. It's the fastest growing um, demographic in military service. I think it's about 20% now our, our serve of, of, of the military is composed of women. And so, you know, the, the Vietnam, these Vietnam War women who li- literally came home, just like the men a lot, to um, uh, a, a very co- complicated situation among the public. They weren't allowed to, they felt like they couldn't wear their uniforms, they couldn't really admit that they were in the Vietnam War. The public really did not want to, uh, was not welcoming of the Vietnam mm-hmm. generation. And particularly of the women who served there. And they talked, they talked about that in this, in these, in these testimonies at the, at the wall. Anyway, I would strongly encourage anybody to, who visits the national mall in Washington, DC to visit the, the Vietnam women's memorial and to understand, you know, the, the place that, that it's a place in history, but it's not a pl- not a not a monument locked in a time. I think it's going to be an inspiration for all generations going forward of women who want to serve in the U.S. Armed Forces. And that's what we want. All right, we'll check out that story and also go to Legion.org. There's a good video posted on that as well. Jeff Stouffer, on behalf of the American Legion, you take care. Enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday. We'll talk to you in a month, okay, brother? Sounds good. Thank you, Flash. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Michael Zweig, author, organizer, and academic, out with a new book. He'll talk about it next on America's Workforce. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Liuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Liuna, the Laborers International Union of North America delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. Hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland at 216-881-1802. Call Music Talent of Cleveland as your dependable source for professional musicians in Northeast Ohio. Union musicians add harmony to weddings, elegance to parties, and uplifting music for all events. Music Talent of Cleveland contracts solo and ensemble musicians as well as bands and orchestras for single engagements. So hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland today. 216-881-1802. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. 
America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. You can find more at ulagency.org. Let's go to New York City right now and welcome a newcomer to the show. His name is Michael Zweig. I've read his articles in The Nation magazine a number of times. Very active in his union. We could start right there. He's uh, with United University Professions Local 2190, which is affiliated with the American Federation of Teachers. And he's out with a new book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Divisions in Capitalism. Yes, divide and conquer. It sounds like that. What's what we're going to talk about on the show today. Michael Zweig, welcome to America's Workforce. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. And you're telling me off the air that you've been active in your union. Is it 50 years? Did I hear that correctly when we previously talked? That's right. I uh, was part of organizing the union and getting it elected uh, by the membership back in 1973. Well, talk to me about your book here, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Now, why don't you explain in your opinion, I'm sure you get into this more in your book, how capitalism has divided us as a nation. Well, this is a book that I've written for activists and people who are involved in the racial justice movement and the women's movement and all the labor movement, all kinds of upsurges that are happening that in their own ways target the capitalist system that we live in. And certainly the racial justice movement and the movement for black lives is one such movement, not just the labor movement that challenges uh, capital directly at work and in public policy. So uh, the the racial justice movement uh, is part of the uh, pushing back of the power of corporate elites that, that have pushed racial division in the labor force since uh, basically the beginning of the country, in, back in colonial days. The um, original in the 17th century, you know, the original labor force in this country uh, were indentured uh, servants and indentured labor that came from England and also from Africa. And they came as indentured labor, not really as chattel slavery, that came later. Uh, the imposition of racial slavery in the United States. We didn't just have slavery, we had racial slavery. So that the uh, the British, at the end of the uh, 17th century, after the Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia in 1676, the British decided that the way to do this in the United States, or in the colonies, was to divide and conquer that labor force that they had brought. Mm-hmm. And that uh, involved the creation of racial slavery, so that the African population would be sub- uh, uh, would submit or be forced to submit to uh, this uh, intergenerational slavery. If you were a slave, your children were slaves, and so on. The English labor was not subject to that. They w- just maintained their old uh, standard conditions of indenture, and then they were freed from that indentured status and become free after seven years. The African population was subjected to uh, chattel slavery for life, and that gave the British a, a power 
to divide and conquer that labor force. And that division has continued until now. And it is still, you'll see, where there's uh, racism and racial animus and white supremacy in the policies of some politician. Mm -hmm. That politician is also very anti-labor and supports uh, right-to-work laws and supports uh, legislation that would uh, limit the power of unions in a hundred different ways, get rid of public sector unions. Those are all things that racial politics plays out in the United States. So if you're in the union movement, you'd be very well served to join in a black freedom movement and a movement for black lives, just as if you're in a Black Lives Matters movement, you'd be well served to join in with and support the labor movement and working people because we're all fighting that common source of power in this country, and that's the power of capital and the capitalist class. Michael, you point out that a steel worker in this country is more exploited, far more exploited than a peasant laborer in Guatemala. Can you explain that part for us? <laughs> yeah, that's a little surprising sometimes for people because what we mean by exploited is some group of people produces a surplus that they don't need to survive, and that surplus then gets taken by another group of people, by their owners, by the owners of the land, by the owners of capital. There is a very systematic process by which people, some people, working people, produce everything, get back in one way or another in capitalism through wages, part of what they've produced, and then the ruling class keeps the rest. Now, if you're a peasant in Guatemala, you don't produce a whole lot of surplus. You're really scratching out a living that you can survive yourself and not much more. So if you are a landowner and you have a thousand peasants for you working on your land, you might get quite a substantial surplus out of those thousand peasants, each one producing very little beyond what they need. A steel worker in the United States produces a whole lot more, and the working class in this country produces a whole lot more than they need just to get by, and that difference of what they produce over what they need. That's the surplus, and that is what is taken not by the landowning class in this country, but by the capitalist class. And so a steel worker that contributes to that surplus is contributing much more surplus than a peasant in Guatemala, even though that steel worker has been able over time and with unions and with the general increase in standard of living to live better and to be less poor than a Guatemalan peasant. I don't know. That, that's the way that I've come to see that. Yeah, yeah, I, I see it. Well, being a 50-year union member, you have to feel pretty darn good about what happened this year. I mean, with all the great contracts, and they just signed off, Stellantis and Ford signed off with the UAW. GM was last week. The Teamsters, SAG-AFRA, the Writers Guild. You think we can continue this uh, going into 2024? What's, what's your opinion? Oh, well, I think that we've got a pretty good foundation here. I think that we've seen some new uh, uh, developments and some new uh, breakthroughs in the way to do things. What uh, Sean Fain did in the, uh, in the UAW by striking all three uh, major uh, Detroit producers, but striking each one only in a limited way. That was a very new way to do things. That was a very creative way to do things. And uh, 
what we saw with the writers and with SAG-AFTRA was that they were able to negotiate terms of technical development. Technology is not usually something that's a mandated subject for collective bargaining. Wages and grievance procedures, yes, but the technology, that's usually just in the hands of management. Mm-hmm. Here we have unions that have managed to actually take some control of that away from management, uh, even though it's not a mandatory subject for negotiation. The same thing in the, in the, auto, in the auto contracts, they got into the battery production. Uh, now, that's a way of using collective bargaining to expand the range of your bargaining unit. Well, that hasn't usually happened before. So what we have here in these examples and what the Teamsters did with their uh, rolling strike preparations where they had practice picket lines, those are things that were really, really powerful, not only as a message to the public and to the boss, but to the workers themselves that this was something that they were doing. This was their strike. This was their preparations. It wasn't something that the uh, union president was going on TV and talking about. So all those things, I think, are good foundations. But we are facing a, you know, a corporate elite and a capitalist class in this country that is very dedicated to crushing labor. And it's no joke as President uh, Biden would sometimes say. We are really in a pickle here with the power that we're facing. And that's why I wrote this book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. And PM Press put it out, and uh, we hope that people will pick it up, learn something from it, and uh, especially the younger activists uh, find a way to understand a little more deeply what it is that we're dealing with, not only in the labor movement, but in the environmental movement, the women's movement, uh, Me Too, the question of uh, uh, Black Lives Matter and racial justice. All these things have their source in the operation of the capitalist system. And that's what I'm trying to get at in this book. And that's what I hope that uh, your listeners and people who are active in these movements We'll pick this book up and take a look at it. It's only 225 pages. It's not a doorstopper. <laughs> Thank you. Michael Zweig, Professor Emeritus of Economics, founding director of the Center for Study of Working Class Life at the State University of New York, author of Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Thank you so much for your input, and let's talk down the road, okay? Right, it's be fine with me. Thank you very much for having me, and hello, Ohio. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce Tomorrow, the Ohio Federation of Teachers and the Trade Women Builds Nations Conference. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.